This is exactly right. If you're a fan of meticulously crafted worlds that reimagine every little detail, then you'll enjoy the podcast Imaginary Worlds. Host Eric Malinsky spent over a decade working in public radio and uses those skills to create a sound-rich podcast that features interviews with Andy Weir, who wrote The Martian, the writers of hit TV shows like Star Trek Strange New Worlds, designers of games like Magic the Gathering, and the puppeteer who designed Miss Piggy. You can find Imaginary Worlds wherever you're listening to this podcast. Welcome to another episode of I Saw What You Did. My name is Millie DeCherico. I'm Danielle Henderson. And if loving film is wrong, we do not want to be right. I'm in a polyamorous relationship with films. And coffee. And and coffee. (laughs) 100%. Films, coffee, Diet Coke. We are all dating. That's right. Uh, There are no mistresses in this relationship. We are all equal partners. No, there's room for everybody. Room for all. Oh my God, we are so fucking pumped up today. We are, actually. And I think it's because I know what we're about to talk about. We're going (laughs) to have some fun today. And this this is a caffeinated episode. So for those of you who love our caffeinated episodes, strap the fuck in. Yes. Just imagine a uh, tiny little tin box of General Foods International Coffees exploding (laughs) with shards just like flying through the air, piercing people's brains. (laughs) Jean-Luc! And then it just like hits Jean-Luc in the fucking eyeball. (laughs) Jean-Luc! This is how Jean-Luc ends. What is up with you? What's going on? You know, what's weird. I actually wanted to talk to you about this because I had something so weirdly funny happen this week. Um, So as you know, I've been going to therapy twice a week now for a couple of months. Mm -hmm. And it's actually been great, like really helpful because we're getting to go deeper. Like, it's just it's just cool. Like, I'm glad that I can afford it right now. But it's it's also weird that it's been helpful because at first that was like, oh, God, is this just going to be me crying for another day every week? But it's been great. And so I was talking to my... (laughs) therapist this week and i said you know is it um is it possible for someone to like develop mania and she's like well what do you mean and i was talking to her about like you know just how i've been feeling and she was like oh um that's happiness <laughs> i was like huh <laughs> she's like you're happy you fucking idiot and i literally could i it has been It's been such a long time since I have felt happy in a sustained way Mm. that I forgot what it felt like. And I thought I was having a manic episode. (laughs) You were like, this is actually a disease and not just (laughs) feeling good. That I developed at 46 years old, by the way. Oh my god. Fucking 46. I'm like, this is it like is mania like a side effect of perimenopause? Like maybe I'm starting perimenopause. And she's like, You're fucking happy. What the shit is wrong with you? And I'm like, oh yeah. And it's true. Like right now, I just like my life is good and everyone I love is is happy and healthy, or at least, you know, they're doing okay and getting getting by and getting through. There's no major shit going on with anyone I love and Mm -hmm. it's like you know I've been traveling and I just I'm just happy and I've been happy for about a month or two 
and genuinely thought I was having a fucking psychotic break. (laughs) (laughs) How sad is that? That's so sad. This is what it's like to live in America right now. If you're happy for two months, you think you're dying. (laughs) It's so out of place in my life to be happy. Well, I'm extremely stoked for you that you're happy. Like, that's such a good... I mean, to me, that's just such good news whenever somebody tells you that <laughs> because it's rare, obviously, that somebody comes to you and just like, I'm I'm just happy. I'm having a good time. Like, things are going well. Nothing to complain about. So I'm, yeah. I'm so happy for you. Thank you. And it is and it's tr- truly it's it's finding that weird balance because it doesn't mean that I don't still get like grumpy or upset at certain things or like mm-hmm. but just on a, you know, day-to-day basis i'm all right and um i don't know like i've I've started doing um a game night and trivia night with some local friends mm-hmm. that i grew up with like a couple of like it's my friend and his husband so i grew up with my my friend here and he and his husband have a house like literally down the road and so i was just like hanging out with them for a game night and they invited some friends up from the city and we're like doing that every week now mm-hmm. and um i don't know i just feel good i just like like the problems of the world have not gone away i'm not you know, shying away from them. But I just feel like I'm in a better place to take care of things that matter to me because I feel happy. Yeah. yeah, I I sincerely thought I was breaking down. Like, that's how. (laughs) Yeah. Do you think, I I mean, I'll tell you what I think about this, but I kind of want to hear from you, obviously. Do you think it's because you're traveling and circulating and, you know, being around people and you're not like kind of in that COVID isolation stuff as much? completely because I I isolated for a very long time and a lot longer than most people. And even though I still take precautions, like I kind of put myself in a much more depressive place by physically not seeing people for a very, very long time. And so, and then I was kind of bothered by like how quickly everyone kind of got back to hanging out. And, you know, I was kind of feeling like, well, you know, I'm missing out on things. I don't like that feeling because I'm not used to that feeling. So yeah, I think the fact that I've been able to, you know, again, still be cautious, but relax a little bit. um, It's made all the difference in the world. And that includes travel. Like I was afraid to go anywhere for such a long time. I did the extra credit with the pandemic. Like I definitely am that student. I did the extra credit. And the thing that I always forget, or it takes a lot to remind me, is that for me, anger very quickly turns to depression. Like I turn yeah. it inward all the time and it just festers and rots. And that's a big part of why I have like little episodes or de- you know, depressive episodes, but like it turns into something more su- like deep and sustaining because I just can't let go of the anger. And like holding on to anger has always been a big, big deal for me. So just finding ways to let go and feel lighter in the earth and feel like, you know, I'm kind of walking a more gentle path with myself yeah. has changed my life. It's just changed my life, like for the better. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, again, I still get upset about things. I still have a full range of emotions, but not letting that anger fester, like doing my rage workouts or whatever it is I have to do has been crucial to yeah. my whole mindset changing. Yeah. And um, I don't know, I'm even like, summertime is always um, interesting for me because I hate the weather. I don't yes. like being hot. I don't like being sweaty, but I love being outside. I love hearing all the birds when I wake up every morning. Like I just love the 
act of the earth kind of doing its thing in the summer. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to engage more and just have a better time this summer, which I think is also helping. And I realized this year, which is probably something I should have realized when I lived lived in Alaska, but I think I have seasonal affective disorder because I bought a sad lamp and it mm. also changed my life. So now that it's yeah. sunny, I feel like, oh, okay. <laughs> Like, I'm definitely someone who's affected by a lack of sunshine. (laughs) Yeah. So I definitely have, like, just been making these small changes. And I'm trying to, like, be outside and be in the sun. And, like, even though I don't like being sweaty or hot or gross, Mm -hmm. just appreciating the things that I can appreciate about summer, which is, you know, I get to see people more. I get to travel more. It's easier to move around. And I like that. So that's all just been great and helpful. Well, and you talked about this briefly last episode and I I was too busy talking about how big of a monster I was to my family during that like glamping trip that you kind of brought it up and then I I had like a hundred and five oh questions about it but then we, we just never talked about it but I just was curious so you you know obviously traveling is a big part of like this you know newfound happiness is was there anything particular about your trips or maybe even one trip that was like kind of a moment where you were like, oh man, I'm feeling good. Like this like this is the yeah. cure or whatever. Well, here here's here's another thing that's wild. I think I'm kind of witchy in this way. Like I manifest things very easily. Yeah. So I decided a couple of months ago, like right at this right at the start of spring summer i was like i'm coming out of retirement i'm fucking people this year like that's what's happening <laughs> like dust off like knock the dust off i'm coming out of retirement it's bone time it's gonna fucking happen you made this analogy once about how you were like rolling the boulder in front of the cave entrance or whatever I just Take imagine you just like pushing that like mossy rocky <laughs> boulder away from the hole. <laughs> and like birds and shit that have been nesting in there are like, what the fuck? We didn't know this. We made a home here. What's happening? <laughs> Spiders are crawling out. But like truly, I just made the decision that like I'm coming out of retirement. Like there's no reason why I have to force myself to be alone in this world. And I think mm-hmm. a lot of it was... And because it's been my choice up to this point, I feel like for so much of that time, and we're talking like nearly a decade, it was really helpful and necessary for me to be alone. And I'm still alone, don't worry. But like it was necessary for me to be alone and to make it a part of my personality and lifestyle. Sure. But just like with the anger and the, you know, doing extra credit on fucking COVID and all that shit, I went way too hard with the being alone and just kind of decided like, you know, at 36 years old, just kind of decided like, well, that's it. I don't want to do that anymore. Like I was just, you know, I took all my hurt and pain and anger and just turned it into a little fucking rock and just let it sink down to the bottom of my fucking soul. And I was like, oh, nope, done with that. But I don't think that's, I don't think that's how I need to be anymore. Like I think that I don't know. I think part of what's part of my happiness is realizing that there are good people in the world and some of them are dateable. And Mm -hmm. I will say this, that if you are an American woman 
who has been single for a long time and frustrated um, looking at the landscape of dating, leave the fucking country as quick as you can. I don't care where you go. There is something truly weird and bad about American men that is missing in other countries. I'm not saying that other countries don't have their shit when it comes to dudes, right? Yes. But there is something truly that should be studied about American men that I do not find is present in a lot of other places. So it has been lovely. And I think part of my happiness is when I go out into the world and I meet people, because I just talk to anybody. I talk to dolls. I talk to babies. Like I talk to anybody. Men are not threatened by me the way that they are threatened by me in America. Mm. So when they hear what I do for a living and I always play it down because I'm not just like, hey, I'm the best. What the fuck? I'm just like, yeah, I'm a writer. And they're like, that's so cool that you like are an artist who makes a living. Mm. And I'm like, wait, what? And they don't ask me to get them a job and they don't ask me for anything. They just like want to know about my life, which is truly revolutionary compared to what I get here in the States. And again, I know I'm painting it with a wide brush, but that has been my experience so often over the last decade that it turned me off completely yeah. from dating. Because <laughs> I'm like, yeah. this is not what I want. I don't want to drag a man through life. Yeah. And if this is what they're coming at, at me with in the first conversation, we're not having a second one. Right. Yeah. So it's been lovely, lovely. Well, and I think situationally too, like, you know, there's something to be said for being on a trip and being on a vacation or just being not in your normal, you know, circumstance. I feel like there's a lightness sometimes. And there's also kind of like a willingness to kind of be do something different. I mean, obviously your brain has told itself, hey, I'm, I've decided to leave the confines of my, you know, my house and everything that I know to do something different. Mm-hmm. So maybe your brain also says, hey, I would talk to this person in this country because I'm like out of my element and I'm just like feeling the moment. Right. But then I think it's also too that American men suck. <laughs> <laughs> Again, it, it, there's, it, I think it's because, you know, I'm, you're also planting yourself in a different culture and a different society. And yeah. there's a different, you know, kind of respect for or reaction to women culturally in other places that I think we don't get here. And we just have so much going on in America that it's also nice to go to places where they're like, yeah, we're kind of upset about like housing prices going up and this, but it's not like we're having fucking riots in the streets. We're not worried about getting shot if we go to the grocery store. It's nice to be in a place where they can just live. And I think that changes the mentality of a lot of people as well, (laughs) where they're like, oh, we don't have an extreme level of stress every single day of our fucking lives. So that's kind of nice to be met with too. But yeah, it was nice. Like I was just like, I'm fucking done with, you know, just locking myself down and forcing myself to be alone because I don't want to do the work of like wading through and finding one dude in this goddamn nation out of, you know, thousands that I can even have a conversation with. So I'm just like, I'm not doing it. I'm going to date internationally and I'm going to fuck internationally. And I think that was a show in the 90s, International Fucks or whatever. <laughs> That's a spinoff of 90 Day Fiance. 90 Day Fiance Fuck Internationally. <laughs> I, but I have to be honest with you. Like, I mean, you're saying all this. And then I think of the last two times I went abroad and it was not the vibe. Like the, right. like, the last time I went, it was 30 degrees. 
there were train strikes all over Europe. <laughs> so I just wasn't feeling particularly sensual, I guess, right, in exactly. that trip. And then the exactly. time before, I was with my mom and dad. Oh, so, God, no. No. And, and it was like, I was too busy renting a car in Italy and driving across the country two times while my mom and dad oh, were God. like, you know, shit handling it. They were like completely Chilling. freaked out. So oh my God. I just wasn't the two times, the last two times I went abroad, it was not the, no. the vibe. But I will say for whatever comes next, the next time I go abroad, it is definitely going to be, I'm going to like, now I will understand why people meet husbands and wives at like resorts and stuff exactly. because like <laughs> I want to go to a resort. I want to actually relax. I don't want to plan the stuff. I just want to like sit in a chair and flirt with people, you know? Exactly. So. And that's all it is. That's all it is. Like the fact that I even wanted to flirt was a shocking thing to me. And I didn't realize I was doing it, but I was like, Oh, Oh, let me, wait, what's happening. Let me tell you something about you, bitch. <laughs> you do not know how charming you are. And I have seen your ass in action. <laughs> like, you say that you don't know how to flirt. But your body language, your tone, everything else says way different. And I don't know if it's because really? you personally dissociate while you're, like, in the moment. <laughs> but, like, I've seen you in action and you charm the fuck out of everybody you talk to. Like, even when you came to Atlanta and we did that thing at Karis Books and we were just, like, out to dinner, like, everybody oh around us was like, who is she? Who is she? Who is she? <laughs> like, you know, and you, I don't know, you just have that way about you. And I know that you probably don't know that, but I'm telling you no. as your friend, you do. Thank, thank you for pointing that out. I, I did not know that about myself. And now mm -hmm. I will be paying much more attention to it. Not in a bad way, but just I think it's interesting because I don't think of myself that way at all. Yeah. But I do like to talk to people. And I yeah. think that is often read as people are not accustomed to that, like the world over. I mm -hmm. think that is I'm definitely in not an anomaly in that way where I will just talk to someone. But they love like everyone you know, you kind of catch the vibe. And I think people like being talked to or talked yes. with. And they just kind of are excited that somebody wants to know about them. Yeah. And, you know, I'm pretty friendly and and, and non-threatening. So, yeah, I'm, I definitely flirt. I'm a flirt. I, I'm all about it, dude. Like, I have always been on team friendly. Sorry. And I don't know mm -hmm. if it's because I'm Southern or something. But, like, you know, there's all these memes on social media all the time about people who just, like, love being grumpy, love, you know, canceling plans, love not talking to people. And, you know, <laughs> like, it's a thing where they're, you know, it's like a picture of, like, a grumpy cat or something. And they're like, that's me. I hate people. I hate talking. And I'm like, no, nah, not me. Couldn't be not me. me bitch. I not love friendliness. <laughs> I love it when people are nice. I love to be flirted with. Let's just say that. Absolutely. By anybody. By e Bring literally it anybody. It doesn't matter any gender, any person. Like, for the most part, as long as it's not creepy, when you give me a little wink, I fucking appreciate that <laughs> shit. <laughs> a respectful flirting is like... Put it in my veins. You, so. you, you like winking. You like a 70s flirt. Oh, like a 1970s, yeah. like, hey. Oh, yeah. You can, <laughs> speaking of your movie, you bring up like a John Saxon type <laughs> with like some crunchy 70s man hair and it just gives like a little smile, like oh a little smile. God. You're like, 
<laughs> Holy shit. Like for me, that is, I love it. I love a little cornball. You know me. So oh I'm just God. telling you, I love this for you. I love the Thank flirting. You. I love, you know, you being out in the world and traveling and I love your happiness. It is so inspiring. Thank you. Thank I love you. it. And it's, it feels like I'm integrating like yeah. my personality and, and my thoughts and my feelings. And I just feel like myself again in a way that I have not felt for actual years. And yeah, who knew that flirting was the big part of that mission quote, that, that the missing part of that quote quotient. Yeah. I didn't know, but I had, and I had such, I'm just having a great time. I'm just having a great time flirting, getting out there. I've met a couple of dudes, one who I really like. Okay, um, okay. He's pretty cute. <laughs> and I'll probably see him again real soon. Wow, this is amazing. We've been chatting. Wowzers, But I'm wowzers. also not like tying myself into like, and then we're going to date, and then we're going to this. I'm just having fun. Just Does he know fun. you do a podcast? Yes, he does. Oh, no. <laughs> but he also knows that I have a crush on him. So whatever. Exactly. <laughs> whatever. I don't hold. This is the thing, too. I'm like, I am 46 years old. I'm not going to, like, invite a boy over to watch a movie and, like, be afraid to touch bodies. Like, if I yeah. like you, I'm telling you I like you. And if I want to fuck you, I'm telling you I want to fuck you. I say fuck on a podcast and I have a crush on you. Exactly. So. And I'm, I'm like... It, you know, a lot of these guys I'm meeting are like very gentle and, and polite and just so cute. And I just like, am kicking the door open like a fucking American animal. And I'm like, what's up? You want to make out? The fuck's going on? And I'm like, oh, maybe I should tame it a little bit. Just tone it down a little bit. But yeah, I don't mind telling somebody I like I like them. What the fuck? Like, we're all going to die one day. And I'm inching closer to it every fucking day. I know. And I don't like I don't have time to be like, do you even like me? Do I like you? And this is also why I'm not on the apps. Like I don't get joy from the apps for this reason, because Mm -hmm. that is it's too aggressive on the apps where it's like, let's fuck. And I'm like, I don't even know your name. Like, I don't even know your real name. So that's too aggressive for me. But I think once I start to get to know someone and I like them, there's no reason for me to be shy about like, I like you. Yeah. Fuck. That's a good way to be. I love that. Well, I'm so happy for you. This is going to be the best summer ever. Look, people, summer, you know what we're doing here for the next, I don't know, couple months, I would say. (laughs) (laughs) We are like diving headfirst into like fun movies, fun themes. Last week's episode with the alien comedies was a fucking blast. We had a bunch of fun, and the train keeps on rolling because this week we have a theme that is so fun, and Danielle has to say the name of it and the subtitle of it. (laughs) (laughs) This one's got levels. This one's got levels. Yes. Our theme this week is let's turn this coffee table into a cage fight. And the (laughs) the subgenre here is movies that made little kids want to kick each other in the face. It made grown women want to kick people in the face, <laughs> i.e. me. <laughs> I am ready. I was pumped after I saw these. Yes. And I watched these as a true double feature. Me too. I have not laughed that hard, and I have not wanted to kick something so much in my life. In the 80s, martial arts was like a huge thing, especially for kids. 
every guy I knew in my like middle school took karate. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I gotta say, not all of them. Only a specific type of guy took karate. Like there were there was other guys that were into like football and basketball and stuff. And I feel like there was like a, a little uh, group of guys that were like karate guys, and I was mm-hmm. always fascinated by them. Unfortunately, they were the guys who would grow up to own snakes. Yes, yes. There was like some kind of like spirituality to these guys that was not in the football, basketball, baseball guys. I'll just I'll just throw that out there. But I feel like it was a good era for like martial arts movies, obviously like stuff like the Karate Kid and also wrestling was like a a, a big mm-hmm. thing, which is not what we're talking about, obviously. But there was also like people were willing to kind of like, I don't know, the kids loved anything involving fights and, you know, hand-to-hand combat in some kind of way. Oh, we were, look, we sought it out in at every turn. If your teacher left the classroom for three minutes, maybe they were going to get water, maybe they were going to a supply closet or something. If they left the classroom for three minutes, they would come back to find people impaled under desks, like an eraser shoved in their fucking mouth, like just blood. It, it was mayhem. We looked for any reason to turn anything into a weapon or a platform for fighting. We were outside all day, every day, and we yeah. had to figure out what the fuck to do with our time because yeah. we did not have a lot of toys, like physical things that we could either bring outside with us or wanted to bring outside with us because we knew our friends would demolish anything that we actually like brought outside to play with. So we had to figure it out. And what better way to figure out how to do something than to pick up a branch and pretend it's a goddamn (laughs) katana and start wailing on your neighbor, Kurt, and maybe breaking his (laughs) finger, which I 100% did. (laughs) What? (laughs) I 100%. I think actually I sprained it. He sprained his finger. I did not know this about you at all. I didn't know you broke a kid's finger. And I knocked the wind out of him too. I knocked the wind out of like three dudes in my neighborhood because I'm like, we're just playing. And I would just start to kick and punch. I didn't care where I landed. And yeah. sorry, Tommy, you're getting that fucking wind knocked out of you today. You are my queen. Like, <laughs> you are my queen. I would have worshipped you if we knew each other in like elementary or middle school. I, I was say. in beast mode 24-7 in the summer, like as yeah. a kid. And it was great because I would watch something on TV, like one of our movies, and then be like, all I need is two chairs and I'm going to try to do the split like Jean-Claude Van Damme. <laughs> I like, we have, didn't need a lot of shit. <laughs> yeah, I have so much to say about these splits. Oh you have no idea. <laughs> yeah, but it didn't I, take a lot, you know? Like, it didn't take a lot. And we had so much hormonal, like, shit pumping through yeah. our bodies anyway that I feel like it was just a natural extension of growing up that, like, we didn't know what to do with our feelings or hormones, so we just hit each other. <laughs> yeah, I, de- I definitely think it was a lack of things to do. And I just mm-hmm. think generally, like, you know, pre-internet kids maybe were more physical and did more physical things. And I mean, if it wasn't like building clubhouses and forts and stuff like that, it was like using branches to try to swat at each other's heads, kicking other kids in the face. And... <laughs> That that's that's that was the joy of the summer, really. Was oh yeah, 
you know, fighting. And furniture, furniture was the best. If you ever were allowed inside with your friends to play, everything became a weapon. The couch, the coffee table, the chairs, everything yeah. became a weapon. Like just leaping off of the arm of a sofa is the, is that not the best feeling in the world? Just launching yourself at one of your friends off the arm of a sofa. Yeah. Or like practicing like roundhouse kicks on your parents' <laughs> bed or something. <laughs> <laughs> like just trying to get trying to get massive air while kicking and then just like landing on their yes. mattress and then your parents screaming at you for ruining their bed. Um, I'm just picturing you like leaping from a dresser trying to get a high <laughs> kick. <laughs> Which my brother did once. He he tried to jump from a dresser, but when he like kicked back after he jumped, like the dresser fell over. And we oh, were kids, shit. so like we couldn't pick it up. Oh, so yeah. I was like, fuck, sorry, mom. Yeah. <laughs> you you have, you can only, there were limits to it. You if you if you destroyed something in the house, that's it. You weren't able to do that kind of shit anymore. So you had to be really careful. But I uh, am so excited to talk about these two films. I am going first it. this week. Yes, you are. Holy shit, we're going to have a blast. Let you already know that. what I want to talk about because oh, I texted you. Absolutely. And I am, <laughs> I am ready to hit that ball back to you. Holy shit. Well, <laughs> my movie for the theme, let's turn this coffee table into a cage fight. AKA, this movie made little kids kick each other in the face. <laughs> it's a movie from 1988. It was uh, written by Christopher Crosby, Mel Friedman, and Sheldon Lenich, directed by Newt Arnold, and it's called Bloodsport. I did not come this far to stop now. Take it. Dude. Okay, first of all, I have to say, alternate theme this week is that bolo young is in both of our movies exactly so which is and he looks the same in both of our movies which is amazing dude i was like these movies are more than a decade apart and he looks exactly the same it is wild he's unmistakable definitely we'll get into him later i'm sure but i just wanted to point that out in case anybody was about to fire off a comment so I want to talk, I got to, I got to talk a little bit about Canon Films because that's the production company Mm -hmm. that made Bloodsport. And I think I've talked about them before. If I have, I apologize, but they hold a very, very special place in my heart. Canon Films was essentially a film distribution company and studio. They were most famously owned by these two Israeli wild men who were cousins. And they produced some of, like, the finest, funniest, and funnest B-movies pretty much ever. And they especially did a lot of work in, like, the action realm, okay? I have to point people, if you don't know what I'm talking about, if you don't, have never heard of Canon Films, there's this really super-duper fun documentary that came out in, like, 2014, I think. It's called Electric Boogaloo. The Wild Untold Story of Canon Films, it is a must-see. It is like the funnest documentary you will ever see, ever. It's super fun. Adding it to my list. (laughs) Yes, talks all about the cousins. They interview like the greatest people. I mean, it's like they get like Bo Derek to talk about like Bolero. I mean, it's just, it it is amazing the, the amount of people they have in this documentary. And it's just like talks about like this era almost of like the 80s and like, 
the ninja films. Like there was like multiple ninja series happening, you know, in the 80s with canon. But then they did Bloodsport, which essentially is like one of my favorite canon films ever. Also, I, I mentioned this at like the top of the episode maybe, but I, I guess I, it didn't really occur to me until I was doing research. Bloodsport was apparently this huge influence on the development of MMA. And really? which is, you know, mixed martial arts, if you don't know what I'm talking about. And I did very quick research on this. So MMA people, please do not come at me. Like, please. I am Literally terrible. or figuratively. Right. <laughs> I'm terrible at fighting. Do not fight me. But it, it basically kind of got perfected after this movie came out. Or at least like the kind of MMA oh. stuff that we know in America, like right now. Like, I feel like the UFC was only really created in the early 90s. I think it was yeah. created in like 1993 or something. And for some reason, I it just was like, oh, I guess, yeah, I guess mixed martial arts fighting yeah. was only really like popularized in the 90s. And it feels that like it's totally been around forever. Yeah. No, that totally makes sense. Because we heard so much about kickboxing specifically in the 90s. Yes. And then MMA kind of took over all of that. Like, because it yeah. combines so many elements of kickboxing with everything else. Yeah. Uh, so that totally makes sense to me. Well, and it's also too, it's so funny to me that Bloodsport is responsible for so many different things because Bloodsport is so ridiculous. Like, Ooh, as a film. No. And I say that with all love and respect. You know me. I'm not trashing this film in that, like, kind of, you know, I'm high above it, like, no, I'm this isn't real cinema type of shit. I'm not that type of person. You know what I mean? So when I mean this movie is so ridiculous and funny, it's not I'm not being mean. I'm being. Uh, oh, you're not being mean at all. Yes. Especially since this whole theme was your idea. Like you <laughs> wanted to watch this movie so badly <laughs> I did. that we created. So you're definitely not denigrating it at all. Yes. But, but uh, you, can, you can point out that it's not a great movie. Like, you're not coming to this movie for the dialogue, but it's still fucking fun. <laughs> yes. But it's so funny that that this movie is responsible for, like, the MMA, basically. But also, I also read that this movie was also the inspiration for Mortal Kombat, the video game. Which oh, uh... I was obsessed with Mortal Kombat in high school. Did you play the yeah, original, like, Mortal Kombat? Dude. Sindel was my girl. Raiden wins. That was my shit. <laughs> like, I played Mortal Kombat, like, pretty much every day after school with, at my friend Liz's house. And, I like, it was such a, like, formative video game for a lot of kids. Like, yes. You know, it just was, like, I remember Street Fighter. I think Street Fighter predated Mortal Kombat. And I remember playing Street Fighter at... <laughs> this is... For you military kids, you're going to know what I'm talking about. I was at the BX with my parents. <laughs> they were shopping, and I was in the lobby playing Street Fighter, like a arcade style. But then Mortal Kombat felt like it was everything about Street Fighter, but just better. Completely. I never really got into Street Fighter. I think it just, it always felt too, it was almost too aggressive and not cartoonish enough, but it was also all dudes, I think. It was like every player was like this beefed up dude. And I'm like, I don't, but then when Mortal Kombat came on the scene and I was like, oh, I could be a kick ass and lady, yeah. an ass kicking lady, I'm doing it. And also it was like so dramatic, like and scary. Like yes. I remember just like 
you know, the whole announcer with like his whole like finish him finish him yeah and it was like a lot of fireballs and a lot of like scary kind of fonts and it was like what was it called oh when you like absolutely fucking destroyed somebody it was like oh my god totality the, or yeah, finality or something fatality when fatality. you did like the fucking fatality where all of a sudden you're kicking punching their head comes off you rip their spine out of their body yes! like it was insane yes ripping the <laughs> spine out of someone's body it was so good. Lighting Wicked. them on actual fire and then their their bones would just fall into a pile. Yes. Like the characters were so good. And it was such a, a much more for me enjoyable video game than Street Fighter. Yes. It got upped a, a, a huge amount from Street Fighter. But oh my anyway, God. so I guess Bloodsport helped m- create that idea for Mortal Kombat, which amazing. I think is really funny. There's some other amazing details about Bloodsport that we got to talk about right now. We got to talk about Frank Dukes. Okay. <laughs> hey. So Bloodsport was based on an article that was written about this martial arts expert and fight choreographer named Frank Dukes. So in the early 1980s, there was this article or a series of articles that were written about him in this publication called Black Belt Magazine, which apparently is like the New York Times for people who are into martial arts. I saw it referenced several times across different articles. I was like, dude, Black Belt Magazine is a huge publication. It's like finding out that like there's there's an actual um, magazine called Space News or something for <laughs> astronauts. You're like, wait, what? <laughs> it reminds me of that Patton Oswalt joke about the Piss Drinkers magazine. Like just how there's, there's a specific magazine for everybody's interest. And Black Belt Magazine is for people in the martial arts. But um, so... Obviously, the character from the movie Bloodsport is named after this guy. And so the the story about Frank Dukes, who is still alive, by the way, he, and this is all stuff that I read about him online, okay? He had been specially trained in ninjutsu by this expert named Senzo Tanaka. I think that name carries over to the film as well. So Frank, as a young person, was uh, trained by Senzo Tanaka, and he later went on to be in the Marine Corps Reserve. And while he was in the military, apparently he received the Medal of Honor. At one point, he was in the CIA, and he was tapped to, like, participate in these, like, really high-level, classified, secret ops-type stuff. And most importantly, Frank Dukes talked about participating in a kumite, which was essentially this kind of top secret global fighting competition of like all the best fighters in the world. Apparently it took place in in the Bahamas in the 1970s, okay? Now you know all that, and that is essentially the basis of the film Bloodsport. However, according to many, many articles that came up, if you just Google it, it'll come up. If you Google the name Frank Dukes, a lot of information comes up. Apparently, most, if not all, of these facts that I just have told you have been disputed or otherwise rendered unprovable. <laughs> okay? like, He's just lying through his teeth like, I'm in a kubate, and they're like, what? Right. And apparently, there's like no record of Senzo Tanaka. There's no record of his training <laughs> with him. Apparently, he had been in the military, but like all of that exciting stuff, like the, you know, Medal of Honor and all that stuff was completely untrue. This Amazing. is again based on the articles that I read. And 
apparently, like, he wasn't even abroad. Like, he was in the Marine Corps, but he never <laughs> went outside of the United States. What's and, amazing about this is, like, all of this is provable or denounceable. Right. Like, if you use the military, they keep records in the military. <laughs> I know. And, like, most importantly, there's pretty much no record of this kumite ever happening. <laughs> like, and I know what you're thinking. Oh, it's a secret event. Of course, nobody's going to tell about it, which is, like, I think we know at this point that, like, if you have some even top secret global fighting events, someone's going to talk. Someone's <laughs> going to be like, oh, I was in the Kumite. Oops. Like, someone will say it. Because a lot of people were doing the research into, into like, what this was and where it was and, like, who was there. Uh, nobody could find a flyer. Nobody could find anybody that was there. There was nothing. And strangely enough, Frank Dukes always maintained that the Kumite organizers or whomever created this thing conveniently gave him and only him permission to even talk about it. <laughs> so that's convenient that he's the only person who could talk about it. Speaking and then, of the uh, theme of let's turn this coffee table into a cage fight, there was always that one kid who was like, I'm the only one who can make the rules. I'm yes. the only one who can do this. And that kid grew up to come to become Frank Dukes. Yes, but essentially. And like <laughs> this and like so at some point, somebody actually came forward and was like, I was there. But then that person or those couple people who claimed to have been there eventually admitted that they were coached by Frank Dukes to say that it had existed. So it's like it's just so fascinating. And I just encourage y'all to go on that rabbit hole like just go down that rabbit hole of of all of this information there's been many articles about it so essentially the the concept of this movie is based on a true life person whose story has been completely fabricated allegedly so there you go okay so now we have all that information let's talk about the star of blood sport okay muscles from brussels as he's called Jean-Claude Van Damme. This was his entry into kind of like the American movie mainstream, right? And I have to say, he is young. He is ripped to shreds. He has his original teeth. Like, it is like prime time JCVD, right? And he plays Frank Dukes, essentially, in the film. You also have an actor named Donald Gibb, who everybody knows as Ogre from the Revenge of the Nerds movies. He, his character, like, befriends Frank abroad. He's basically like a biker kind of character. And he's probably, besides Forrest Whitaker, he's probably the only other actual actor in the film. I mean, and the other guy that plays, like, Forrest Whitaker's partner. Maybe they're, these guys know how to act. Let's just right. put that there. There's only, like, a couple people that actually know how to act in this film. So... Let me give a one-sentence synopsis of Bloodsport. An American military man who just happens to be trained as a deadly martial arts expert is brought to Hong Kong to compete in a secret fighting championship. Also, at no point was it questioned that he was from Belgium. He's just yes. like in the American military, like flat out. You know what I did appreciate? Actually, let me save that. <laughs> let me save this for what I'm about to say. So you're, yeah, you may be asking yourself now, like, how did this Belgian guy living in America become a ninja? <laughs> that sentence is the greatest sentence ever spoken on this podcast. 
Well, <gasps> so as per the film, in childhood, Frank Dukes and his middle school friends, they decide to one day crawl into a random stranger's window just to steal a sword. Okay. And so Frank is the only kid that gets caught and he's caught by the, the father who lives there. And then after he gets caught, the family just adopts him basically. <laughs> like, <it's> like <laughs> have a little conversation with his, his dad and they're like, look, you came here to give your kids a better life. We came here to give our kids a better life. Why don't we just take your kid and put him in our family? Yes. And, and so now his new dad is basically a sensei named Senzo Tanaka. And he kind of just, I mean, it, there's actually a point of the film where like sensei like goes to his parents' house and is like, <laughs> I'm taking your son. He's going to live with me and train with me. And they're like, okay, fine. Uh, <laughs> so it, that happened very quickly, but um, oh, no. I guess they thought to do that in the film. But um. So, you know, Tanaka begins to sort of teach Frank how to be a ninja alongside his own biological son. And the funniest part about this is that his actual son, who's also like in middle school or something like that, just starts kicking Frank in the stomach and the head a bunch. <laughs> it's just like, welcome, brother. I'm going to kick you in the face. <laughs> Here's a welcome kick to your fucking nuts. <laughs> I also love that this part of the movie is told completely in flashback. Yes. And there's a point where every once in a while, they'll flashback to present day Jean-Claude Van Damme's face. And he's just in the same pose staring off into space while this like 40 minute fucking backstory is happening. It is hilarious. The, the serious moments of this film are so fucking funny. You're just going to have to get used to that. Like if you've come for, you know, a serious time, it's not going to happen for you. Like, all no. of these, like, pensive, serious moments are so bad and funny. I'm, I'm just obsessed. So, yeah, in flashback, including this one flashback where, I guess, Frank has sort of learned how to fight a little bit, and then he starts beating up kids at his school. And while this is happening, there's a little boy in the background who is wearing a Bartles and James t-shirt. I need a full, like, vice-level, like, a, a history, oral history of just that fucking kid. Bartles and James t-shirt on, like, a 10-year-old. I was like, this kid knows how to party. Um, then I was like, do you remember the Bartles and James commercials? Like, yes. as a kid, with those two, like, old folksy guys? Yes. Oh, my God. I'm like, I thought it was juice. I'm like, why are these old men? Because every other beer and every other commercial for alcohol was like, party time, let's jump in a pool and drink a Budweiser. And there's these two old guys on this porch. And I'm like, is this juice? What is this shit? No, it was like malt liquor or whatever. I don't even know. <laughs> it was what... a wine cooler. It was a oh, wine, it's a wine cooler. cooler. That's right. I was like, what is even Bartles and James? I just remember <laughs> the bottles. And then I'm like, you're absolutely right. I was like, in what Spuds McKenzie universe is an alcohol company saying, like, let's get these two old guys to promote these wine coolers? Oh, God. It was. I don't know why that moment is so embedded in my fucking head. 
because yes. it's just it was so normal back then but it is so funny now that this kid was just like his dad was probably like yeah i got this at the fucking liquor store i won some <laughs> i won around a kino and they fucking gave me this t-shirt yeah he, he's you he have shows it. up the next day in some like newport shorts like his, his dad is just like a liquor and cigarette <laughs> distributor and gets free shit all the time and is like put it on my kid send him to school Oh God, I I love it so much. That singular moment is just yeah. all I That's need. That's the this moment movie. you texted me about, and I screamed because I was like, <laughs> "I was like, are we going to talk about this game?" Oh yeah, I totally <laughs> noticed that too. So sadly, uh, Sensei's biological son dies. Okay, and so now it's like JCVD comes to step in to kind of like replace him, <laughs> replace his legacy. So then you know the Sensei kind of kicks the trading into high gear you know, decides that he, that Frank is uh, worthy enough of learning the lessons. And then, you know, there's all of this, like, entire training sequence that goes on for minutes, and it's so funny. At one point, like, I guess as part of the training, uh, Frank has to serve tea blindfolded. <laughs> I was like, okay, I guess that means something. It means he's good at something. There's also like that one part of him like trying to grab fish out of the koi pond. It's a lot of that. A lot it's of a lot. A lot of funny training stuff happening. This was the moment, by the way, of the film. Cause I had seen this film a long time ago, but I haven't seen it, you know, in the at least in the last 10 years, where I was like, I need to stop the the movie and look up just how much money it took to make this film. <laughs> and I was fucking shocked. They made this film for like $1.5 million, basically. <laughs> Hard to believe that the Cannon, the Cannon Boys paid that much to make this movie because it actually looks like it was made for a lot less. <laughs> it looks like it was made in my backyard for $300. Yes, yes. It just really hit me at this moment. I was like, damn. They did have money, technically, for this film. Um, oh, my God. So cut to Frank as a grown-up. You know, he's in the military. He then subsequently runs away from the military to do this kumite. Okay? He goes AWOL. And because that, because of that, these, like, military intelligence agents, one of whom is, again, played by Forrest Whitaker, they are tasked to go to Hong Kong and get him. Okay? So know that that's what, what's going on with Frank. So Frank shows up in Hong Kong, and I swear to God, he's wearing the tightest, deepest scoop neck T-shirt. The titties is out on Frank. Like, <laughs> did you notice how how that shirt was ha was hanging on his chest? It was barely a shirt. It's like yes. two pieces of thread. Like, just go shirtless for fuck's sake. This is not it even a style. Like it looked like a cummerbund with like suspenders. It didn't even look like a shirt. It was oh my god, so funny. His entire chest is pretty much out. And then you know, while he's there, he befriends the Donald Gibb character. They become like best friends with like a loyalty pact that transcends the ages. Uh, and then also this local guy named Vic, who is kind of the like comic relief. He's he's kind of the guy that's kind of given him given him both the uh, local information and the Kumite rules and that kind of stuff. So I don't have to tell you that the Kumite is essentially a competition that brings together all of the deadliest motherfuckers on the planet. And as part of this competition, you know, Frank is somehow, his, his authenticity is challenged. And then the officials are like, 
Well, if you're a real member of the Tanaka clan, you have to prove it by doing the dim mock, which is apparently the touch of death, which is essentially a way to kill somebody just by like poking your finger at them. <laughs> it's like a sh point strike death kill. Like it's, you know, one of those things. And the sequence to prove this, by the way, involves like stacks of bricks or something. And then it's like, <laughs> Frank like just palms one. He like palms the top one and then the bottom just explodes. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's so much force <laughs> that it just He's reverberates through the bricks into the last one. And they're like, oh, shit, he has a dim lock. He can do it. Like, he's got to be in this competition because he's really good. And also, like, Jean-Claude's faces, I swear to God, are so good. Like, his his face, like, so that. Funny. it's like, the, the look in his eyes, like, I cannot believe that I'm this good at <laughs> martial arts. Oh, my God. So, of course, there's this American woman who is coming to Hong Kong, and she's, like, reporting on the Kumite. And it's a big secret. And nobody's giving her info. Even after she bangs out JCVD. And the next morning, we get this, like, ass shot. This, like, JCVD ass shot where he's pulling up his, like, jockey briefs. And then you see, like, the top part of his ass. I was like, okay. Like, I see what you're doing. Oh With God. the deep scoop neck and, like, the butt crack. I'm like, you're really, like, selling jcvd in this film right and even then he's like bye thanks yeah i'm not telling you anything well she shows him because literally the next scene is her showing up to the kubate dressed like vanna white or whatever from wheel of fortune ah. <laughs> and she's like sidled up to some like asian businessman and she's like i got in Oh, my like, God. Well, that's all it took. I don't know why you were wanting to do journalism when you could just, like, dress like Vanna White and enter into the secret clandestine <laughs> martial arts competition. So oh, so then you get into the meat of the film, which is essentially this kumite. You know, there's a bunch of different fighters, and they all have their own different styles. And I think this is eventually why this movie became, like, influential to the MMA because there's like different people and it's like some people are doing like Muay Thai some people are doing like capoeira some people are doing like jujitsu and it's just kind of like everybody kind of bringing their own flavor and it's very entertaining and Frank starts using his techniques on people too sometimes he punches dudes in the tits sometimes it's in the balls sometimes he's just like I'm gonna hug you so hard Almost like I, I do with my nephews, except that he hopes that by doing that, their brains just pop out or whatever. And all the while, nobody can act in this thing. It no. is glorious. Like, it's just bad acting, a lot of, like, funny-looking moves, but also, like, like I said, dudes getting kicked in the balls, dudes getting kicked in the face. The one thing that is so unbelievable about and this is like something it is a testament to like just how fit jcvd is but he does a lot of splits in this oh my film. god the man is unstoppable when it comes to, to splits he's doing splits zero caution or concern for his taint or otherwise 
And it happened so often that it almost felt like the filmmakers were like, listen, we don't care if he can act. Just get him in a split. Off the ground, preferably. Obviously, as Tate can take it, this is his calling card. Get him in a split on some chairs. I mean, <laughs> I love how the Jackson character at one point is like, yo, man, you got to stop. You might want to have kids one day. Yes. <laughs> like everyone is like concerned for this man's package because he's yeah. always in a deep side split. Yeah, we were all thinking it. So thank you. We were all thinking what he said. Oh, my but God. But also it did. It did make me go down like a YouTube rabbit hole where I was like trying to figure out, like trying to find like tutorials about it. I'm like. Because it, like everybody was like like everything that I read about like how he does it is that he's flexible, but I'm like, but also he has to have muscly quads. Like, there's yeah. no way that he can sustain his body weight, you know, on two chairs if I think he that's didn't why have, you know. That's why it's such an intense move. And they exhibit it in the film when he's training with Tanaka, and he is basically tied up with string. In a full split, and Tanaka's like, yeah, what you gonna do? And he squeezes his fucking legs together and pulls the stakes out of the ground. Yes. I'm like, oh, so you're strong. Okay. Yeah. You're very, very strong. And he lands on the ground, too, in the split, which I was like, yikes! Just no regard for that taint. No, none. He's like, I feel nothing down here. I would be surprised if... Jean-Claude Van Damme has not had 17 episiotomies just for splits. <laughs> He's the but, first and only dude <laughs> to have multiple episiotomies. But it's such, dude, it is such a fucking, like, show. And, of course, he has to do it as much as he can. So it's great. But this is the thing. It goes through, It goes through. you know, the competition. The best, one of the best parts for me, I love this part, I don't know why, but basically, like, you know, the Asians finally catch up to Frank in an alleyway in Hong Kong, and then they try to taser him. But then he magically comes up with, like, the top of a metal garbage can. Like, he was just, like, hanging out with Oscar the Grouch. And he was like, yes! <laughs> and he just, like, deflects the taser. And then the taser, like, shoots out and hits some police officers. But then you also have the epic scene with Chong Lee. Now, Chong Lee, who is played by Bolo Young, you know, he's kind of, like, the final boss, right? Because uh, he's undefeated in the Kubite. There's at one point that Chong Li, during the kind of epic battle between him and Frank, he like uses like this tablet, like this like actual pill tablet, and he kind of crushes it up, which I thought was like, is this ecstasy? What is he doing? But then he kind of like blows the the dust into Frank's face, which blinds Frank. And The entire time that happened, I was like, guess what, bitch? Didn't you see the scene from an hour ago where he served tea to people completely blind? Oh, God. Like, this shit ain't working. Like, you played yourself, dude. But, I mean, honestly, like, this movie is so fun as fuck. Like, it's badly acted, yes. The music is terrible. (laughs) (laughs) Like, is it bad? Absolutely, across the board. But But it is so fun. And the fighting is really fun. The splits are obviously, like, a huge part of that. Like, and it's just that thing where you're like, oh, yeah, like, you know, JCVD would go on to become a huge global star, obviously. But this was kind of like his origin story, which, I don't know, is really fun. And I just love it. It it, it is, like, the best, one of the best canon trash you know, action films of the 80s for me. And 
I know it's apparently very influential on a lot of different things, so I appreciate that. Oh, I'm so glad you had us watch this. I haven't seen it in ages, and it made me laugh just as hard, if not harder, (laughs) than it usually did. And it was just, it's just so good. It's just, it's good in that way of like pure comedy, good time, like hang out with friends, get a pizza and just relax. It's so fucking funny. Dude, I love it. Well, I, listen, compared to my movie, your movie is essentially like Citizen Kane. (laughs) oh god well my movie is definitely influential and it has so many iconic scenes that you have absolutely seen replicated in other films and my film was released in 1973 the screenplay is by michael allen and bruce lee and it was directed by robert klaus my movie is enter the dragon what do you know about Han? he lives like a king on that island totally self-sufficient now this movie was Absolutely fucking foundational for me kicking people in the face and knocking the wind out of dudes when I was a kid because it was on WPIX Channel 11 all the time. There was always like like fucking karate, kung fu, like all like all kinds of movies on in the afternoons on a Saturday, on a Friday, like during the summer. And I'm like, let me try to replicate all of this. There was so much from this particular movie that I was like, I'm, I'm doing it. That's my life now. But I'm going to go, I'm like, I'll give you a one sentence synopsis of the film, and then I'll talk about the movie and talk about Bruce Lee a little bit before we get into the specifics. My one sentence synopsis is an ass-kicking Shaolin martial arts teacher is sent undercover to fight in a tournament and uncover the dastardly deeds of a fucked up one-handed villain. Perfection. There's a lot more that goes on, but that is just part, a big part of it. So this movie was actually Bruce Lee's last completed film, and it was released one month after his death. Most people think of it as the greatest martial arts film of all time. And I can absolutely co-sign that. I think it is just like it's a cornerstone. It is foundational to Mm -hmm. martial arts movies, not just because of the intense amount of fighting that goes on, but it's like the style of fighting and who is actually fighting. And it's actually got a good storyline and it's actually got some pretty good actors in it. It's a great movie. And this is also the film that launched Jim Kelly's career. Uh, Jim Kelly plays Williams in the movie. And he, um, he went on to be like a huge black exploitation and, and, you know, martial arts star on the back of this film. And he wasn't the first choice to play Williams, um, but he had already been studying, judo i believe in crenshaw uh, california so he kind of was already in that world so when the first choice actor dropped out he was picked and it just again sent his career into hyper drive the other thing that i really love about this movie is that it's it's intentionally diverse they wanted to reach as many people as possible with this movie um bruce lee had made a bunch of films up to this point that were you know gaining in popularity and he was on the green hornet and so this movie kind of got a lot of backing and a lot of support and they wanted Mm. because of the backing that it got from the studios they wanted it to be seen by as many people as possible and that's something that always got to me about this movie also is like you could see like a black guy fighting women were fighting like it was ahead of its time in its scope so i Mm. love this movie for that reason um and it's not bruce lee's last film his his last movie is game of death but he died 
during that filming. So this is the last one that he completed. He's just amazing. We talked about him a little bit when we were talking about his son, Brandon Lee, when we did The Crow a couple weeks, a few weeks ago. But he, Bruce Lee, is the founder of Jeet Kune Do. He was born in San Francisco. His father is actually a famous opera singer. And I didn't know this, but he was on tour when Bruce Lee was born. That's why he has dual citizenship, because they were on tour in San Francisco when his mother gave birth. Oh, wow. That's interesting. Yeah, because yeah. he was an opera singer. And as a kid, he was he was apparently a vicious street fighter. Like his dad get, used to get notes that were like, your son is really fighting in school and it's bad. And if he gets into another fight, I might have to put him in jail. Like he was <laughs> definitely a vicious street fighter as a kid and always studied martial arts. Um, and his parents eventually sent him to the States and they're like, you need to go somewhere else where you can stop beating people up because they were from Hong Kong. Yeah. And so they sent him to the States and he went into college. He, you know, he dropped out of college eventually, but he always wanted to be an actor. And when he moved to Seattle, he started teaching martial arts, you know, as well as studying it, martial arts. And I think the first thing that kind of put him on the scene was the Long Beach International Karate Championship, which is where he showcased the one-inch punch, which is not unlike the death death punch from your movie. Oh, the Dim Mock. Yeah, yeah, the yeah. The Dim Mock. Uh, because essentially, and you should, if you've never seen a video of it, you should really watch a video where it's basically, you know, Bruce Lee's in a certain stance and he has his arm extended and without much, without what looks like much force, he like can knock someone over essentially, with, yeah. from like two inches away. It's fucking incredible. So yeah, that kind of put him on the scene. And then again, he got cast as, you know, in, in the Green Hornet as a sidekick, but it put him on the scene in Hollywood. And throughout it all, he really emphasized his fighting style, which he called it like the style of no style or fighting with no fighting. And he really got rid of the kind of formal approach that most people took to martial arts and focus a lot more on the on the philosophy and kind of the you know the philosophical side of of fighting. And again, really there's so much to read about him, you absolutely should, but one of the the huge tragedy is that while he was dubbing scenes for this movie Enter the Dragon, um he died of a cerebral edema. And he was only 32 years old. He died July 20th, 1973. He'd had a couple accidents on set before that, but he, you know, had died of this, this brain injury and was having seizures and headaches and all kinds of things leading up to it and was given mm. painkillers and, but nobody really diagnosed what was actually happening. Um, so he kind of died of this, this swelling of the brain. Mm. It's really tragic. Yeah. But Again, left behind a legacy that is unparalleled. And I will also say that Bruce Lee, Bruce Lee pr planted the seed and Kevin Klein fertilized the plant ha! in terms of like this movie launched a million kinks for me ha! and a million other people like this movie is he is so hot. Bruce Lee was so fucking hot. It is yeah. unbelievable. And I think part of the reason that so many of us kids tried to mimic him is he made everything look so easy. Yeah. Like with what looked like minimal effort, he would be leaping above things and over things and kicking things and ruining things. And his face was so expressive and he had such a great style about him. So, yeah, this movie, I will break down into fight scenes and kinks. Yes. You he, he also has a swag to him. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like that was the thing I think that really kind of made him almost like who he was is that he, 
Like, because I will say this, I think he can act. Like, I yeah. think that Bruce Lee can actually act. Unlike the people in my movie, he's got a whole attitude and a swag to him. And I just feel like he's entertaining and he's a badass yep. and he's all those things, which I feel like is a little bit different than, you know, just sort of people who are, you know, martial artists in a film, you know, there's right. something extra to him. So Yeah, he can't, it's not that he can just fight, like he's really captivating as well he's a good actor and he also has like maybe negative percent body fat oh my god he has muscles on his body that i have never seen on anybody before like they're like yeah. muscles on top of a muscle where you're like what is that muscle how did like, that develop yeah that come from he has those ones that i don't i do not know what they're called i always call them wings where like if he holds his hand puts his hands in a fist on his hips yeah he has muscles that fill out under his arms from his back. Yeah, those like <laughs> it's like for uh, for me where like the fat seeps out of the bra strap. Yes. Yes. But that's instead like <laughs> muscle. <laughs> and he's turned that into muscle somehow. Incredible. Oh, what the fuck, dude? That was the first time in my life like watching this movie was the first time I ever saw those muscles. I've seen them since, but like seeing them on this tiny dude, this ripped dude, I'm like, where did those come from? You yeah. don't even have enough skin for that to be possible. It was unreal. So this this film is literally a good film, and it is also hella entertaining, and Bruce Lee is a goddamn miracle. So essentially, at, at the start of the film, we're in, we're in this Shaolin temple, and Bruce, Lin, Bruce Lee is just like, let me kick this guy's ass in my underwear real quick and just, you know, kind of show you my impeccable fighting style and hair flips, and I'm going to stand over this dude in victory in, like, the coolest way ever. Then I'm going to jump over your hands while you, like, Eiffel Tower them. <laughs> Just as a little, like, little, little whipped cream on the Sunday. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just going to leap over your hands and have you, just leave you super excited while I just casually show you how fucking powerful I am. So then while he's, he's, you know, he's resting after he fights, and I love that it starts with a fight, you get to just instantly get into the action. And this guy comes over to him, his name's Braithwaite, and he essentially is like, yo, we sent you this invitation for this tournament, are you going to do it or not? Nah? And <laughs> Bruce Lee, who's playing a character named Lee, Lee says like, all right, hang on, let me just teach this lesson real quick to this youngster. And... This is where kink number one is launched. Bruce, Bruce Lee looking at this fucking kid and just saying, kick me. And then he's like, first he's just staring at him and he's like, kick me. And then the, the kid kicks him and he's like, emotional content. And I'm like, I'm fucking done forever. What the, I don't even know what the fuck you're talking about. That is hot as shit. He's like, don't kick me with your leg. Kick me with your fucking emotions. What? okay and he's like give him all these fucking parables where he's like if you point your finger at the moon and you look at just your finger you're missing all the other stuff and he's i'm like you're blowing my mind right now and you look hot while you're doing it so it's it's that intensity that intense so intense. guy being like kick me with your emotional content <laughs> oh my god i love him i was like oh my god that's so cute i'll kick you with my emotional content i'll, I'll know what it is i'll develop it and then kick you with it um <laughs> It's just so cool. He was so cool. Uh, then we get basically, you know, he tells Braithwaite, you know, he's like, all right, let's go talk about this. But as this is happening, we get to see 
the other two fighters who are going to be the pri- the principals in this film arriving to Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. So we see John Saxon, who plays Roper, and Jim Kelly, who plays Williams, arriving in the in Hong Kong, and we get to see their backstory. So first and foremost, we have to get the backstory of Han. And Han is the villain of the film. And Braithwaite is basically telling Bruce Lee, while he's sitting on a green couch in a sweet-ass suit, he's like, all right, so this guy used to belong to this same Shaolin temple where you're teaching, um, and he went rogue, and he has this bodyguard, O'Hara, who has this big old scar across his face, and, you know, O'Hara likes to take long walks on the beaches and have boards broken across his body and break bricks that are on fire. Like, those are his his fucking turn-ons. But he's tough as shit. And I'm like, how many people lit shit on fire in their lives and tried to break it after seeing this film? Like, we would constantly go out in the woods and just light shit on fire anyway. Oh, my gosh. But then, like, trying to light a branch on fire and kick kick it clean, like, br- like break it clean. I am surprised most of us did not go up, like, fucking tinderboxes. Man, I'm telling you, there was so much of that when I was a kid of people like trying to break things in half. Like, Ugh. I mean, I swear, these two movies in particular, there's a lot of that. A lot of a that. lot, yeah. a lot of discipline through breaking. Yeah. And then we also learn about Han that he it has this self-sufficient island fortress. Uh, and he's really only in contact with the outside world via this tournament that he hosts every three years. But the other fucked up side of this island is that he basically loads it up with women and then shoots those women full, full of heroin. He was like the first sex trafficker on screen, essentially. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Just awful. And then Braithwaite is so like uptight and British about it as he's reading this off to to Lee. And he's like, she died. Uh, she overdosed. Uh, yes. On a uh, uh, heroin. Like, oh, have you heard of it? Heroin? <laughs> yes. He's so uptight about I it. Have. And so Braithwaite's like, all right, cool. Here's what's up. We want you to go in there and get us some evidence because we know what this guy's doing. We just don't have any evidence that he's doing it. Um, so go in there and be a spy. And Bruce Lee is like, why don't you just shoot this guy? He's so cool in this scene. I can't stand it. He's like, why don't you just shoot this guy? And they're like, no, because the territorial waters make it impossible. Like, oh, now we're following rules that we can't bring guns to shoot this guy. (laughs) But we will send a spy to a tournament to get him. Um, So he's like, get some evidence, kick some ass, and then get to the radio. And maybe somebody will come and get you and help you out. Like, it's just so dubious. He's like, yeah, maybe. (laughs) So then we get the backstory. We get Lee's backstory. So Lee goes to speak to the leader of the Shaolin Temple. And this guy's like, look, at the last tournament three years ago, I was in the city with your sister and a bunch of Han's dudes tried to assault her. And basically the monk gave O'Hara that O'Hara, that face scar with a knife in an attempt to save her. But she she runs away, but she is kicking fucking ass in yes. this movie. She is doing fucking kicking dudes in the face. She's doing spin kicks. She's jumping from buildings. She's fighting on rooftops. It's only one scene, but it was so great as a kid. And it's even now just to see the intensity of her fighting yeah. and trying to save herself. Yeah. Oh man. It was amazing. I was like, yes, yes. And it's so unfortunate, you know, obviously what happens next yeah. uh, because she fought off this gang i mean like multiple dudes just like falling down and it's so satisfying to see that 
see yeah. the fight sequence, yeah. And well, even the next scene, which is basically that she kind of barricades herself in this building and then the guys follow her and she picks up this shard of glass and essentially stabs herself in the stomach and takes her own life instead of being assaulted. So even that move, I'm like, that is fucking cold blooded. Like it is so, in- she's so intense in that small window of time. It's like a lifetime of story and I love it. So that so basically this monk is like, so go to the city, pay your respects to your sister and your mother and then go kill all these motherfuckers at this tournament because the other reason your sister is dead. Yes. <laughs> so it gives him a purpose and it sets him on a path. And I love that. Then we get Roper's backstory. And Roper's backstory is that he's terrible at golf. He has a major gambling problem and he owes a lot of money. But he also has a golf cart with an actual corded phone in it. Like a phone on a cord in a golf cart. So he's broke as shit. And we can see exactly why when we see shit like that. You're like, oh, that's how you're spending that money, Roper? Yeah, that's why you got $65 in your bank account because you got to get this like souped up golf cart with a phone i don't know how much the phone bill is for making phone calls off that thing the long distance charges are out of control every every call is a long distance charge it's out of control has to be and every as he's like kind of floating through kowloon bay and doing his you know arrival to to the city every kid and dog is like super sus about him because this man has bought and i'm not kidding he has bought with him at least 12 hard-sided suitcases yeah. Like so much luggage for someone who's going to be basically wearing like the same uniform for the next three days while he fights. <laughs> he has loaded these boats down with luggage. Um, and then we get William's backstory. And I love his backstory because first and foremost, we meet him on this boat in Kowloon Bay. And his the person who's driving his boat is a woman with a baby strap to her back. And she's like, I got work to do. I will take this baby with me. But his story is that he's basically harassed by the police because some things never change. And he literally has to fight his way out of the state. So he like fights off these cops and steals a cop car because they harass him for no reason. But what's cool about these these three scenes is that we're, we're getting everyone's backstory so you can see that they're all fighting in a way that they have nothing to lose and everything to gain. So that really raises the stakes without, you know, kind of having to be more pointed than that. We just get a really quick glimpse into why they're all at this island fortress. And this is also where we find out that Roper and Williams know each other from the Vietnam War uh, as they all get on this boat and try to go and do this fight. There's a really funny scene on the boat too, where or two funny scenes where Roper is such a fucking gambling addict that he is betting on a fight between two praying mantises. <laughs> 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 and Lee is like, yeah, I'll take your fucking money. No problem. Uh, and then he, there's also a scene where this guy from New Zealand is such a fucking prick. Like he, he's supposed to be one of the fighters and he comes out and like kicks this crate of oranges this kid is carrying for no reason. And Lee is, he's he's like, let's fight. And Lee's like, eh, well, don't waste yourself. Like we'll fight on the, at the fucking tournament. He's like, no, let's fight right now. And he's like, all right, let's take this boat and go over to that island over there. And the guy gets on the boat and he just lets the the lead out, like lets the rope out and lets him float behind the boat for the rest of the trip. And everyone laughs at him. It's very funny. <laughs> so then we get to this island fortress and we can kind of see the army that Han is building because he does have a martial arts school at this fortress. And we meet some of the women that are involved and there's this big banquet. Again, another kink didn't know I had. Bruce Lee eating and smiling at the same time. Hey! 
was <laughs> hot as fuck. Like, why don't you eat something and smile and then let's get to go to town. Let's get down. <laughs> I'm loving this uh, look inside of your brain right now. <laughs> <laughs> I and look, I didn't know until I was rewatching this movie that I'm like, oh, OK, yeah, that is hot. That's where that comes from. It gets in there deep, people. Exactly. But then Han comes in and everyone kind of free. What's hilarious is when Han comes into the banquet, everyone freezes in place. So like even the sumo wrestlers who are the entertainment are just like stopped in their spot. And it's kind of fucking hilarious. But he comes in and like, you know, has his army of women showing off what they can do. And one like blows a dart through an apple and he's just chucking apples and letting women impale them all over the place. And then they start bringing these women around to the rooms. So Williams, of course, is like, yes, I will take four of them. Um, <laughs> and Lee is like, no, thanks. Actually, I just want to talk to the that one dart owner. And when she shows up, he realizes you realize that that's his contact because Braithwaite showed his her showed him her photo and was like, this is your contact. She's been inside. Make sure you help her out. So I kind of love that. Then the next day we have kind of a new a new kink developing where mm. he just like refuses to wear his uniform to the morning ritual like he's an anti-establishment king mm. and he's like why i'm just gonna be like we're just gonna be jamming our hands in and out of these hot coals anyway like what the <laughs> fuck dude why don't I get a goddamn uniform for that let me be Love comfortable it. let me wear yeah. what i want just his little face, his little sassy attitude. He's like, I ain't wearing that fucking shit. And he doesn't even say anything, which is the best. But yeah. the tournament is kind of hilarious. So Williams makes very short work of the New Zealand guy. And then that night, while everyone else is like choosing their women and fucking, Lee is creeping around trying to get info on Han. So he is like sneaking up behind a dude quietly and he has a hand and a fist. And then he like jumps into a tree, which I can now tell is reversed imagery. But at the time, I thought it was totally possible. And I spent an inordinate, inordinate amount of time as a kid trying to jump backwards into a tree. Oh, my God. Exactly. I was like, I thought that was amazing. I guess I didn't know like how it was actually done. But at the yeah. time, I was like, this guy is so fit. He can jump into a tree. It's amazing. Completely. I'm like, this, is, this has to be possible. Yeah. It, it is not. Um, but <laughs> Han finds out about the creepin'. He doesn't get caught, but he finds out about the creepin' and he kind of like reiterates the rules that his guards now have to fight each other because they're incompetent mm -hmm. and they need to prove that they're worthy of staying with us. And that's where we meet Bolo, mm -hmm. Bolo Young. And he is fighting these dudes and he picks one dude up and just kind of cradles him to death. Yes. It is the weirdest move where he's just like, let me just pick you up and fold you up a little bit. It just crunch you to death a little bit. Yeah, it was like, it's like he picks him up like a little baby and then he squeezes him gently and then all of a sudden you hear this crack. And then it's like, and then he just drops him and he's fucking dead. And I'm like, damn. It's fucking I just nuts. thought you were like fixing his back, but apparently you cracked his... You cracked his entire body in two, and now he's just dead. Oh, he's gone. And he is <laughs> truly, like, he is a wall of a man. Like, he is a wall of meat. He is huge. Yeah. And just demolishing dudes left and right. So he, and this movie also is kind of like one of the last, like, one of the final bosses. Yeah. But the first fight of the day is Lee and O'Hara, and there's this big, you know, kind of this, like, tete-a-tete -tete beforehand, and he says one of my favorite things ever because O'Hara comes out and is like fucking breaking boards. And he's like, this is what I do. I break boards on my fucking body. And Lee just simply says, boards don't kick back. 
That's right. I you think you're fancy now? It. Wait till you get a board that kicks you in the face. Oh, and he's about to find out because O'Hara does this move where he tries to jump over Lee while he's on the ground and Lee kicks him directly in the dick. And if you don't <laughs> think I tried that move, <laughs> he kicks the man directly in the dick while he's like legs akimbo trying to leap over this man. And I'm like, that is going to be my move. Go for the nuts. Listen, even as a 45 year old woman, when I watch that scene again, when that happens, I scream and go, got kicked in the dick. <laughs> you can't help it. It's so exciting. <laughs> and then O'Hara thinks he's pulling some shit and he's like, I'm going to, I'm going to break these two bottles and come after you. And this is again, my, my next favorite move. Lee just pushes him to the ground and jumps on him. And he's like, yeah! like he does his face in this like, <laughs> just jumps on the man and ends his life. And I tried to replicate that move for months out of my life, months <laughs> out of my childhood. Yeah. And it never quite worked, but oh my God, it's so cool. So then we see Williams who's fighting Han because Han is like, I know people were creeping last night and you have to be the dude who was creeping because one of your ladies told me you left. And then he kills Williams. He kills him yeah, after rough. they fight, which is rough. And, but we do get to a little bit of info here, which is that Han has an iron hand. He has a prosthetic <laughs> iron hand. And we this don't know hand. why. And that hand like, looks it's like an iron baby hand. It's so fucked up looking. Yeah, it's like truly like this sharp, kind of like pre-Freddy Krueger, like fucking razor hand thing. <laughs> it is so weird. And I'm like, all right, so you got this fucking iron hand. And you see this point of where he's talking to Roper next after he kills Williams. He's talking to Roper and he's kind of got his cat and he's petting his cat. And that's where Austin Powers gets it from. Like there's, you will ah. see so many scenes in this movie that are an absolute nod to Enter the Dragon. Um, so he's kind of taunting Roper and he's like, why don't you put your head in this guillotine that I have? No, well, why don't I put my cat in here and chop it in half in front of you to show my ruthlessness? And Roper like saves the cat and then he pulls the guillotine lever and it's an elevator. And I'm like, what the fuck, dude? But he introduces Roper to his like daughters who are his bodyguards. And he's like, oh yeah, by the way, here's my opium cook station. And I want you to be our US rep. And if you say no, I'm going to do you like I did your friend here. And he shows him Williams all tied up in like barbed wire and shit. So Roper is a fucking bitch. And he's like, yeah, I'll do it. Like he just rolls over so easily. And while this is happening, <laughs> Lee is creeping again. He goes out and this is, okay, another, another fucking kink. Bruce Lee with that white rope wrestling a snake into a bag. Oof. And then he's fighting. He goes on to fight a hundred dudes in a cave with some nunchucks. But him putting that snake into that bag and then shimmying down that rope. I was like, I can get into this. Yeah. This fucking presidential <laughs> physical fitness shit. I'm about it. Oh so he my fights God. all these dudes downstairs in the opium den where, you know, Roper was just walking around and he gets caught. And Han basically makes Roper fight Bolo, Bolo Young. But Roper wins, which nobody sees coming. So then Lee kind of joins Roper to fight this army that Han is pushing on them. And Han trades out his fake hand for a board with three nails and a merkin on the back of it. <laughs> it is the fucking jankiest looking prosthetic I've ever seen in my goddamn life. Yeah, it's like the blood on Satan's claw. It is so, <laughs> so insane. It is so bad looking, but don't worry, because while this fight is going on, 
He goes and gets his business claw, <laughs> which is next to his hand bones that he keeps in a fucking museum case. And his business claw is just like Wolverine claws. <laughs> and so this is where we get to my final kink. Bruce Lee with scratches all over his face and torso. And there's a point where he licks his own blood from his torso wound. And it took a few years for Kevin Klein to seal the deal. But that did something to me. If I've ever scratched you during sex, you're welcome. This is where it comes from. If only Kevin Klein had licked his own blood off of his body, your vagina would have... I would have passed Big away. Big Bang Theory itself. <laughs> I would have had a, been like the first nine-year-old to have a stand-up coronary event. <laughs> he looks so hot in this fight scene. It's unreal. And then he just crushes, fucking demolishes Han. It's amazing. It's just a, such a, it's a well-paced, well-written, wonderful, wonderful fucking movie. It is a classic for a reason. It is the best martial arts film of all time for a reason. Bruce Lee, has, he looks, un, he's never been better. He looks unbelievable fighting in this movie. He does in every film, of course. Yeah. But he's at the top of his goddamn game in this movie. And it is so entertaining to watch. Always. Yeah, I, I have to ask, did you have similar questions about the mirror ending of this film as you did with the chorus line? <laughs> I absolutely did not. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I did. This, this one made sense to me because it was one dude spinning around on something. And I know that when you face mirrors against each other, it creates that infinity thing. No yeah. one else is popping out of mirrors all over the place like they did in the chorus line. Oh, yeah. But it, when I watched it again, I totally thought of you, like, <laughs> in the in the 3 a.m., the witch's hour, like, Googling, you know, how they did the mirror trick. How does mirror work? You know, Bruce Lee coming out with, like, a gold top hat being, like, one singular <laughs> sensation. <laughs> in my parody remake of Enter the Dragon, <laughs> that is the ending. Hundred percent, and it's just more and more bodies spinning on those mirrors. <laughs> You're like, how do they get all those bodies up there? I didn't even notice that. <laughs> oh shit! Oh god, I love this movie. I love this week. This is a great double feature. It's oh so gosh. fucking fun, and I just had a blast. So fucking fun. I love these movies. I love the theme. I'm so glad that we got to watch them together. Oh, my gosh. But listen, everybody, please, if you have <laughs> anything to say about this episode, if you want to show us pictures of your uh, karate outfits from elementary school, please send them to us at I saw what you did pod at gmail.com. And you can find us on our social media at I saw pod on Instagram and Twitter. And also we have merch. Go to the uh, I saw what you did section of the Exactly Right Shop to find it. And bonus eps. You know, our bonus episodes drop the third Thursday of every month. And our old bonus episodes are just constantly hitting that feed until we're done posting them all. Yes. Our bonus episodes are kicking you in the face. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> roundhouse, a roundhouse kick of bonus episodes. <laughs> <laughs> well, Danielle, you have to tell these people the movies for next week. Oh, cannot wait. Next week, your homework is to watch Tremors from 1990 and The Boogans from 1981. Oh, my God. Dude, I love summer. I love summer. <laughs> so fun. So fun. Listen, Danielle, it's always a fucking pleasure doing this podcast with you. You're the, the best. best. The best. I love it. 
See ya! This has been an Exactly Right production. Produced by Casey O'Brien. Mixed by Edson Choi. Our theme song is by Tom Bryfogle. Artwork by Garrett Ross. Our executive producers are Georgia Hardstart, Karen Kilgariff, and Daniel Kramer. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at IsawPod. And you can email us at IsawWhatYouDidPod at Gmail. Follow I Saw What You Did on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate and review the show. And visit ExactlyRightStore.com to purchase I Saw What You Did merch.